Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Coffee and Open Source, a place to meet some new friends, have some great conversations, and maybe learn something along the way. I'm your host, Isaac Levin. And if you're enjoying the interviews here, be sure to like, subscribe, follow wherever you're watching or listening. And also, if you're interested or know any folks that would be interested in coming on chatting, feel free to reach me on Twitter. My handle there is IsaacR11. All right, so with that out of the way, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. We were having a great chat right in the green room before, and I'm excited. So let's just get to it. So my guest today is Jason Langstorff. Well, I think the, the best way to kick off this conversation is let, I'd love to hear about your tech origin story. So like, do you remember a point in time when technology came across you and you just, this was the thing that you realized you wanted to be assimilated with the rest of your life, rest of your career or that? Uh, you know, bag grocery somewhere and, and you'd get, you know, your two weeks worth of work in cash that check, pay the one bill that was outstanding, and then you would get back in the van and go back on tour. Um, and along the way, we didn't, we didn't make any money, right? So we, we'd get gas money. We'd maybe get enough to you know, like buy ourselves a nice meal off the dollar menu at McDonald's or something. And there was no extra to invest in the band. So um, we needed tour posters. We needed merch. We needed a customized MySpace page. We needed a tour blog. We needed uh, all these things. And I didn't have any ability to like hire help. So I just kind of was like, all right, I'll figure it out. So in the band, I became the sort of the de facto figure it out guy. Sure. And I designed our merch and I figured out how to do tour posters. And I would coordinate with folks in different cities to, uh, to like get street teams together. So, you know, I'm in a van on the, on the highway, uh, talking to a girl in like a freshman in high school in Tucson, Arizona, asking her if I can like mail her posters that she could hang up in the high school and, and try to get her friends to come to the show. Right. Like it was just this whole thing. And then I customized our MySpace page and I built our first website and, uh, it was all fun. Like I was having a blast doing the whole thing. And when the band broke up, because, you know, we, we got to the point where we were like starting to make label shortlists and talking to our friends who were getting deals. We just realized like we were never going to be a band that made money. We were going to be a band that ended up in debt because like most record deals for small time bands are, are more like high interest loans than, than like, you know, the thing that you might imagine a, a record deal is like, it's, you know, it's not like a suitcase full of money. Yeah. You basically owe a label a lot of money. And um, we were like, we don't want to be in debt to be in a band. So we broke up and I was trying to think about what I wanted to do next. And I realized that, uh, as like far as going running a band went, I was good at everything about being a touring musician, except the music part. So I was like, well, wait, I like, I learned all of these business skills. Like I, yeah. I can build websites. I can design things. I can negotiate for, uh, for payment and coordinate things. I can manage time and schedules maybe I could just be like a web designer. Um, and so I, I kind of accidentally learned how to do these things. And then when my, my initial dream went up in smoke, I, I realized that I had built enough crossover skill that I could move into this as a career. So it, it was a, a fortunate kind of happenstance in my case. It wasn't like a you know, I, nobody handed me a computer when I was a kid and I was like, this is it. This is the thing. Yeah. It was, <laughs> yeah. it was very much like my backup plan, but I, yeah. uh, you know, it ended up being, you know, I, I don't really play music much anymore. Um, I still really enjoy it, but I, I enjoy computers and, and yeah. technology more. Yeah, no. And I think that it, it's, and I've had a lot of conversations on the show and outside of the show that about how there is this very interesting overlap between people that love music and play music and people that mm -hmm. are technologists, right? Um, I, I, t I always say that in, in technology, computer science, whatever you're saying, there is a lot of art to it, creativity, mm -hmm. being able to solve problems, be able to kind of think outside of different comfort zones, right? Like, do you see any similarities as like a working gig musician, working musician, somebody who, you know, was always trying to create new things and the technology side of your life where, you know, trying to build intricate applications that do blah, right? Do you see some similarities there? So I, I, I have, uh, yes, I do. And I, I think this is going to bum some people out, <laughs> but the, the biggest, the biggest parallel that I see is that people misunderstand what this is about. Right. Like I think a lot of folks 
they look at musicians and they think, wow, what a, what a creative lifestyle. Like they just sit around and noodle on a guitar all day and they yeah. write these songs and everything they do is creative. And that's actually not it. Like it's sure. a slog. Yeah. It is, you're on the road constantly. You have to do a lot of work behind the scenes that has nothing to do with the music itself. And that, that type of kind of the, the hard work that goes into enabling the creativity is very easy to gloss over. And I think the same is true in, in dev. I've talked to a lot of devs and I've, I've heard a lot of stories of, of teams where developers have this, this sort of sense of, you know, I, well, I only want to work on things that fulfill me creatively. And I think that's like, I'm glad that code is a creative outlet for people, but it's, it's not like, it's still a job, right? Yes. Like if you want to do this thing and you want it to be your source of income, you also have to do the parts that aren't fun. There's a bunch yeah. of stuff that needs to get done that is challenging. And that is kind of a, kind of a slog. Like it's just this thing that has, to, you have to communicate to your team. You have to, you know, write a scope. You have to update people on where your work is going. You got to write your test. You got to, you know, uh, groom the backlog, like that stuff is all really important. And yes, I know that, that, you know, doing the maintenance on the, the account dashboard, that's a Byzantine nightmare of legacy code, isn't what you would do for fun, but you're not there for fun. You're there for a paycheck. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, and so, yeah. So I, I do, I do agree with you. Like code is a very creative outlet, but I, I think we've, in certain aspects, we've lost the plot a little bit where we, because it's what we were doing for fun before it became our jobs, we treat our jobs as if they are hobbies. Yeah. And then we don't want to do the stuff that's not <laughs> fun, even if that's the stuff that actually, you know, puts the, the, that's what gets customers to pay. That's what puts the food on the table. Um, you know, we, we, we are not special and unique snowflakes. We're people with a job to do and the, the job needs to get done or we all don't have jobs anymore. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that's a spicy take at all. I mean, I, I, I talk when I, when I mentor like junior developers or folks that are wanting to get started in, in computer science or technology in general, I, I do tell, I do warn people a lot about it isn't like, oh, you're going to work on the, the the latest, greatest things all the time. You're going to get mm -hmm. to do all this fun stuff. You're going to make a buttload of money. Like I tell people like they got to be a little bit of a masochist to enjoy the job, right? Because there's a lot of stuff that's outside of the fun that that's how you actually earn the paycheck, right? Like, and if you right. figure out a way to just make money doing the things that you love, like that's great for you. But 99% of the rest of us don't get that luxury, right? Like, and I think there is some similarities between you know, you, when you're talking about setting up like all of the, like the business of running a band or being in a band, mm -hmm. right? Like that's not fun. None of that stuff is fun, especially for folks that probably, you know, I, and this is not to disparage musicians, but probably aren't about business. They're more about the creative aspects of playing music. Right. And I yeah. think, you know, the juxtaposition of, yeah, it is a lot like being a developer, having to prune the backlog and chat with business analysts and, figure out why my stuff isn't building like no fun. Right. So yeah. I guess there are more similarities to being a real, uh, like an actual musician and writing code than I thought. Yeah. And I think that the, the other piece of it too, is there's, there's a lot of similarities between people who, who feel frustrated that they're not getting to do like, you know, live their dreams is people who, who, believe that it's all just fun and games and yeah. like if you just play hard enough someone will discover you and do all of the boring stuff for you and you know you'll just get plucked out of the crowd and get to live this charmed life that is for musicians you know i know a lot of extraordinarily talented musicians who were anti-business like they didn't sure. want to promote their work they didn't want to they didn't want to play shows because they felt like that, you know, they were like, well, we don't want to promote because if we promote, then that like, you know, undermines the art of it. And it's like, <laughs> okay, but if you don't promote, then no one knows that you exist yeah. and you'll never, no one will ever hear you. And they were like, yeah. oh, come on, man. It's about vibes. And it's like, I don't know. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean it can be about vibes, but yeah. then you're, you're literally just playing for the, you know, your circle of friends yeah. and that's fine if that's what you want. But like when you say your dream is to 
make music for millions and then you're completely anti doing anything that would help you reach those millions um you're 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 preventing yourself from achieving your own dream and i think that for for developers who say they they want to get into the field and build these meaningful things and and create these these impactful solutions and change companies change the face of technology all this yeah. stuff and then they won't promote their work they won't advocate internally they won't do internal training they won't learn how to manage up they don't think that d learning how to deal with their their you know like well the technology should speak for itself well cool it should but it won't so are you going to do that work or not because if you're not going to do that work nobody else is going to do it for you mm. you you should accept like you can choose to accept that i know that nobody's going to use the open source tools that I build because I don't promote them. I don't want to maintain yeah. them at the level that a, a popular open source project needs to be maintained. So I just kind of ship them. And if somebody finds them, great. And if they don't, also great. Because yeah. they did what I needed them to do. And that's what I built them for. Yep. But if I was bitter that like nobody's using this library that I built and I'm unwilling to put any of the work that a, a maintainer like, you know, Dominic from the, the Tanstack query team or... Uh, you know, any of these folks who's like, that's their job. That's yeah. what they do. I'm like, it's, it's absurd of me to expect that somebody's going to notice when I'm not doing any of the work. <laughs> sure. I, I mean, man, it, it's so, it's so funny because I agree with everything that you're saying, but it kind of comes off as like, oh, back in my day, I walked up the hill, you know, both <laughs> ways in the snow, right? I, I, it, I but I, it's, it's spot on to the effect that like I'm a, I'm, I personally am a realist and I recognized right when I got started in, in technology that I wasn't going to be like the best developer in the room. And if I was the best developer in the room, that wasn't a, a thing. That wasn't a positive for Isaac, right? That was a, a negative for the room. Um, so mm. one of the things that I recognize quickly is I like teaching or I like giving the information that I have to other people. And maybe mm -hmm. they'll be something that maybe they have the gifts that I don't. Right. And I think that that's something that I always preach to folks too. It's like, just do what you find interesting and you'll end up getting your way. Like I had, um, I had somebody reach out to me. They were in graduate school and they wanted to, they wanted to figure out how to get a job in firmware security. And, um, and I reached and I said, well, do you enjoy fir firmware security? And they said, no, but I've heard there's good money in it. I'm like, well, Okay. But I imagine that job is very hard to find. Why mm. don't you instead, why don't you try to find a role doing something else that you might enjoy that's a bit more mainstream? And if things work out, maybe you can get into that field later in career if it's still something that's of interest to you, right? Um, because I think, one, there are way too many jobs out there in tech and there's not enough people mm. to fill them. Um, and two, the technology is always moving so fast that we really don't know what we want to work on. Like I had a manager one time ask me, oh, what's your like three year plan? And I said, uh, I mean, to be alive in three years, like I don't have like a three year plan because by in three years, there's going to be some weird thing that comes out and it's going to mess all of us up and we're going to have to relearn how to do things. And that's just the way technology is. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, it feels to me like there is, there are broad strokes and then there's there's like the details and yep. in broad strokes if you can find a way to enjoy the process of coding right and and like engineering is is a very broad field because you could be doing you know firmware security or you could be doing front end focused on like CSS and JavaScript animation and like very visual interactive stuff. Or you could be like back of the front end, like, you know, building more like infrastructure and data management that's coming out of APIs and, and more, you know, the, the like algorithmic kind of stuff. Um, or you could take your JavaScript to the back end and build node servers. And all of those things are, are related tangentially and yes. like in the the spirit of programming like what i learned in ActionScript, which is one of the first programming languages i worked with and what i learned in php and what i learned in node they all they're they're all the same general concepts the the syntax is different and there are yeah. unique capabilities in each but they all you know they've all got loops they've all got different yeah. logical operators and and so you know you you have this broad application so if you can find a way to have fun that 
that makes you want to keep doing it. Like the, the trick for me at least has been learning to enjoy the process of learning. Yes. If, if I feel like I'm kind of advancing a skill set, and it can be any skill set for me, like I really love learning to cook something. I learn, I love learning how to like, I, you know, we were talking about audio before the thing started. I love geeking around with this, this audio gear that I've gotten trying to find new ways to make it more effective. And I'm a process nerd. I'm a code nerd. Like any of this stuff is all fun for me because it, they're all little puzzles and I get to solve yeah. them. And, and that's really fun. Um, figuring out that I like to learn in this, this area, this kind of like puzzle based novelty driven thing, I can optimize for different career moves that I never would have considered sure. as, as being something that I would be into. But once I realized that like, oh yeah, this is basically solving puzzles too. I was like, oh wait, that, that would be fun. I do like that. Um, and so the, the pursuit of like m- not specific depth of skill, like I'm going to be the best database architect in the, in the room. But for me, the, the, the meta skill of like, I'm going to be the person who has the most experience uh, picking up new skills. Or, you know, I'm going to be the one who has the strongest track record of getting dropped into an unfamiliar situation and, and figuring it out, whatever that thing is, yeah. right? Like I, for me, that's allowed me to build enough of a frame of reference of like, I, I bring uniquely to the table, the quality of like, I've done a little bit of everything. Yeah. And if you bring me into your team, I'm not going to be the best engineer or the best product manager or the best uh, salesperson on your team, but I've done all three of those jobs. And so I'm going to give you a really well-rounded uh, strategy that helps serve all of those goals, as opposed to somebody who's kind of, they've only ever done backend. So they focus on the the strengths of the backend architecture with no, no awareness of how it affects the product, how it affects the front end, how it affects the sales motion, whatever that thing is. Um, so it's, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm off on a little bit of a tangent. No, here, I think, no, I love I, it. I think the, the for me at least, I think the 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 specifics of what you're learning matter less than starting to recognize the patterns in how you learn and like where you offer the most value. Um, and and I think that starts to really give people a, an advantage when they start to understand not like what is my like ultra concrete narrow technical skill set, but rather what is my broad offering in terms of my unique, my unique worldview, my unique sure. blend of experiences that would, that would help me augment this team. No, I mean, I, I think everything that you said makes tons of sense, especially you said a couple of things and I just want to peel them out, maybe have some more conversation around that. Like the idea of, of having fun with what you're doing, right? Like mm. that's very, very important. And you mentioned one of the things that you enjoy is like the the act of actual learning, which I think Mm -hmm. is really, really hard to navigate, right? Because one, we don't get enough time in technology in general to like learn, right? We're asked to do the work. Maybe we get training ever since the last two years because of the the pandemic, COVID, whatever you want to call it. Like the ability to go out and learn at shows or at events is Mm -hmm. not as frequent. You do it at home. No one is going to be able to say, hey, I'm going to log in to and watch YouTube videos all day for, you know, no boss is going to be okay with that. Right. Uh, I think, but the, the second thing that you said, which is very interesting is like the, the jack of all trades, master of none sort of conversation. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is to me, it's very, I don't want to say triggering, but it, it piques my interest a lot because you were around in tech when the idea of like the full stack developer became a thing, right? Where it's like, hey, you don't, you don't, you're not like an expert in CSS. You're not like an expert in Angular. You're not like an expert in database queries, but you can do a little bit of all of them. So you're a full stack developer. And that as more and more stacks came out and became more important, the idea of a full stack developer became almost impossible, right? Mm. I'd love to kind of get your thoughts as like, I, I agree that having a breadth of knowledge is important, but at some point the breadth needs to stop. Right. Like I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on that. So this is a, I had a really good conversation with the front end happy hour uh, podcast crew about this idea of specialization versus generalization. Yes. And the, so that, that quote, the Jack of all trades and master of none, the, the next line 
in that aphorism is jack of all trades, master of none, but oftentimes better than a master of one. <laughs> and the, the reason for that is depending on what you're trying to accomplish, like what stage is your business at? What, what are you trying to do? What, what is your goal at the moment? Oftentimes for a, a early stage startup, an ultra specialist is a really bad call because sure. you, you don't know enough about what you're building, why you're building it to bring in a world-class expert on like database scale, for example. Um, sure. Unless your company is like planet scale where their whole thing <laughs> yeah. is database scaling. Yep. Um, but the, the, the idea that early on somebody who's a generalist can come in and, and have a more holistic view. You've hired one person who can get you 80% of the way there. And will you have to clean up some of their mess later? Yeah. hundred yes, percent. That's what specialists are for. But if you, you maybe couldn't afford to go out and, and hire and train 10 specialists, but one generalist with the right Venn diagram of experience mm -hmm. can get you started and help you validate product market fit. You can validate whether or not the, the general idea works. And then once you've proven it and you've got adoption is starting or, or whatever flywheel you're trying to get turning is starting to turn, then you, you either thank the generalist and send them on their way, or you reduce their scope and you bring in specialists to start taking things off their plate and start refining the pieces that you know work. Yes. Um, so this is, this is something that I think is uh, like, I, I, I always get into conversations like these and I, I feel like sometimes they get set up as very black and white. Like, you know, a, a generalist is bad for companies because X, a specialist is bad for companies because Y and depending on what, what time in a company's life cycle you ask that question, I think the answer is different. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, my, my heuristic around this has kind of become like early in an idea you want generalists because you want somebody who's going to say, well, well, yeah, but I have know a lot about product. And because of what I've seen with, you know, these aspects of, of building products, we probably want to try these things in the engineering first. And I've done enough in the engineering realm of, of this thing we're building that I can prototype it and sure. I'll get us something that we can ship to real users and they'll try it and they'll tell us what they like and don't like. And then that'll give us enough validation to be confident in investing real like full-time specialists in building out the thing. Um, and then as your company is more mature, you're going to be doing less like net new stuff. I think you'll, you'll find, uh, you know, if you, if you look at companies like, you know, an IBM, for example, the, there's, there are pockets of R and D, but most of what's happening in the company is there are very profitable, very mature products that need to keep running and incrementally improving. Yes, and so hiring a generalist into that that general, you know, you you bring a generalist into that product, and they're going to come in and be like, "Well, this is boring. I don't want to be here." Sure. Yeah. But you bring a specialist in and say, "Hey, build me a whole product." They're going to just they're like, "No, <laughs> they're not yeah. going to do that." So finding the the right the right blend of skills and the right focus on generalization or specialization, depending on uh, what you're trying to build, I think is really important. And yeah, even if you do have somebody who, who you would call a generalist, how far can somebody be a generalist before they're a, before what they would consider to be uh, a little bit of knowledge is more like just has dabbled in <laughs> yeah. because I, like I, I would say I am a web generalist. If you drop me into just about any web project, as long as it's written in HTML, CSS, and JavaScript, I can find my way around yep. If you drop me into a Rust project, I have used Rust before, but I'm not useful at it. Yeah. Uh, and you know, you I could say the same for databases. I have I have done the like the 101 level of database architecture where you know I know enough that if you tell me I need to go set up a SQL database, I can do that. You need to I need to set up a document store. Sure, I can do that. Yeah. Am I going to do a good job? Almost certainly not. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, and that's and that's and that's perfectly phrased too. Like, I think one of the things that's very, very like you mentioned Rust, right? Like, I make this joke that I've learned how to uh, program and go fifteen times, right? Like, <laughs> yes. I because it, it, it's just my brain. Like, I'll learn it and I'll 
in my in my view feel like I'm somewhat competent and then I won't mm. do it for a few months because I don't use Go for my day job. And I literally have to just sit there on the Go docs like, okay, like how do I do this? How do I catch on handled exceptions? How do I like all of that? Mm-hmm. Like it's just in one ear and out the other, right? Right. Um, and I think because of the fact we have so many tools now, not and what I mean, not not just technologies, but also tools to make the technology accessible, it makes it even more challenging, right? Because like I remember it used to be like, what browser do you use? And then it became, mm. what JavaScript framework do you use? Now it's like, oh, like, you, do you use Kubernetes or are you a simpleton, right? Like, <laughs> like, I, it, it, but, it, all right, take a break. <laughs> uh, but I think, but I think the, the biggest thing, it's, it's about figuring out what tools are going to bring you the most joy too. Like, mm. and to kind of jump to another, another little topic that you brought up, like this, the generalist, the generalist versus specialist thing. It's not just in like the tech size of the business too. Like mm. I used, I have a marketing background. I used to be in product marketing. You, to an extent, have had a marketing background. You in developer mm-hmm. marketing, developer experience, right? And you said something that's very, very interesting. Depending on the maturity of a company, you might want somebody that like has worked in many areas of marketing or sales, or you want mm-hmm. someone that has experience doing all these different tennis of a job where else if you work for you know big company x like you want it you need a very specialized position you know, specialized set of skills for this particular thing you'd be very good in demand mm-hmm. gen or regional marketing or whatever it is right so i that's it's something that's really important too it's like it's not just tech where like you have this mm-hmm. generalist versus specialists all across the business yeah and i think um something that i've noticed as i've worked with different uh, tech companies um, in in both like full time employment and consulting, is there's there's almost like a, like milestones that a business will hit. Where, for example, in in one company, I saw a a an executive who was fantastic from like fifteen employees up to a hundred employees, and then once they crossed a hundred employees, that same executive was starting to struggle. Mm. Um, and so that exec left to go join a company that was like a 20 person startup and they hired somebody who was more specialized in that, like next stage of growth, like the hundred to 500, uh, employees size, um, vice versa. I saw, uh, uh, an executive come from one of the big companies, like 5,000 plus employees. They came to 150 person startup and they ground everything to a halt sure. because they were trying to do things at the 5,000 person scale yeah. and there weren't enough people. Right? Yeah. And there weren't enough yeah. people to do the process. So they were just like, it was like a, like, it was like a dishwasher going with nothing. Like, you know, you just like put a fork in a dishwasher. It's like, like they, they had so many things that they needed to be done and everybody was trying to do their things, but the company wasn't big enough to support that scale yet. So it, it just ground everything to a a full halt um, because we had the wrong scale of executive for the scale of company. Uh, And, and so I think the, the thing that's interesting is this is, this is not a two dimensional gradient, right? It's not just like, experienced executive plus company equals success, right? It's very much like it's a a whole 40 thing because, you know, what, what areas of skill do the founders have? What size has the company scaled to? How much confidence do they have about their engineering department, their marketing department, their product sales support, all those things. Um, Who have they already hired? What's their blend of skills? And then what is this executive's, experience of like scaling from X to Y, uh, how, what, what overlap do they have? Are they filling the right gaps on the team or are they like bringing in redundancies that are going to cause tension because you know, you, now you've got three people who have a lot of product experience and nobody who's got deep sales experience. Yeah. You've just got like light sales experience because this person is a, a sales and, and marketing exec or something. Right. And, and so you've got, uh, it's interesting to me because I think the nature of startups sort of removes this idea that you should stay at a company for a long time. 
Yeah. Because you you almost develop like a slice of company life cycle that is your mm. specialty. Sure. I, for example, am very good at small companies. Sure. Once the company gets above 75, I'm okay. Once it gets above 250, I fall apart. Mm. Uh, I just don't work well at, at companies above about 250. So I want to work with the companies that are around 15 to 50 because that's where, in in my opinion, that's where I fit best. Yeah. Uh, Cause that's where my experience is. That's yeah. where the, the processes fit my, my temperament. Like I just know that about myself now. So I'm, I'm kind of aiming for that. And if I help a company get to 50 or 150, I'll probably start looking for like, what's the next company at 15 to 20 that I could go join and try to bring them to that point again. Um, and I've seen a lot of people do this, like designers who were great when the design team was one or two people yeah. who really struggled when it was 10. Uh, or vice versa, people who came in and they were used to having a big team and they just were really like overwhelmed by the amount of things they had to do when they were one of two people on the team. Um, so I think it's it's a, a good like an exercise as a hiring, like whoever the hiring manager is to think about, you know, what do we need? What's, what phase are we in right now and where do we want to get to? And are we hiring somebody who's who's bringing in the right blend of skills and the right experience of scale? And then as somebody who's applying for a job also, like how big is this company? How big was the last company you were at? Think about all the companies you've worked at where you were happy, all the ones where you were unhappy. What scale were they at? What were they, you know, what were they asking you to do so that you make sure that you're lining up, not just to the skill set, but also to the, the life cycle of the business and make sure that it lines up with your, your skills and strengths and interests. Yeah. I, you said something and I had a question and you kind of answered it already. And the question was like, are certain personalities better fits to for smaller organizations versus larger organizations, right? And I think you answered mm -hmm. it to an extent, at least for you. But do you have an, a belief that, and the reason why I ask this is, you know, if somebody new joins your team, like the first thing that you're going to do is like, before you meet them, you're like, okay, let's, let's see if the, let's, let's check out their LinkedIn, see where they've worked. Maybe we've mm. worked somewhere similar before. Like maybe we have colleagues, maybe just try to build like some, knowledge of what that person brings to the to a company and if you see like a lot of a lot of different employers right and they're all you've mm -hmm. never heard of right it's like they're all startups right I, my question is is do you think that there's a certain personality type or a certain kind of individual that i don't want to say only should work at startups but is probably going to be more successful working at startups and you kind of mentioned that you're one of those but do you think that that's something that's more common in the industry or do you um, think that it's something that's a bit more, you know, Jason, you're like a very special snowflake and you're the only person that has this sort of thing? No, I, I think so. I, I, I think there are working styles and appetites for chaos mm -hmm. um, and those those blend. So I, I don't necessarily think it's a personality type so much as it is a. Like if you were to look at um, people on the the introvert extrovert spectrum, like sure. that's not their whole personality, but it's yeah. it's a, a influencing factor. So I would say this is kind of the same thing. Where I there's a this the what is it a, a an analogy that uh, Simon Wardley uses to describe types of workers and and it's um, pioneers, town settlers, and city planners. And the, the idea is that like somebody who's a pioneer is somebody who wants to explore new areas. So they thrive on ambiguity, lack of structure, uh, just general chaos. They want to be in a um, exploratory capacity. Someone who's a town settler is looking for something that has been proven to be possible, but isn't mature yet. They want to take something that's like, okay, we know that uh, in the, using the, the pioneer town settler analogy, sure. like this plot of land is workable and yeah. we want to turn it into a place we can live. Yeah. Um, and so uh, this would be, you know, somebody who once the, once the R and D department has prototyped something, the person who loves getting that prototype, tearing it down and then building it again the right way. Mm -hmm. and, and proving out this is this is not just like a good idea, but this is a scalable, sustainable idea. And then on the, the city planner side, that's somebody who wants to like take a big service and make it perfect. Yeah. So SREs, uh, city, city planner mindset is great for somebody who's an SRE because what they want to do is start looking at a functioning system and 
streamline every piece of it and try to make it as clean and bulletproof and, and just functional as they possibly can. And so I think that depending on which department you're in, like there are R and D departments, you know, the office of the CTO at a giant sure. company where a pioneer is a great fit. I, I am, I would say I'm more of the pioneer mindset. Like I love chaos. I love it when somebody's like, Hey, we've got this like poorly defined idea. Do you want to work on it? And I'm like, yeah, Hell yeah I do. Like, yeah. let's go. Yeah. <laughs> um, whereas I, I know some of my colleagues, like if, if I get into full blown, like ambiguous idea mode, I can see them getting anxious yes. because it, it's just like, I'm, I'm a fire hose of ideas and they're freaking out because they're like, am I like, do we have to build all of that? Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. no, I, I totally, I, I, I've been in rooms. Yeah. And I, I'm not to say that I'm similar to that, but like I do at some ventures walk outside the box a little bit with ideas and you can just read a room and some people will just be like, Oh no. Like, mm -hmm. like, cause the people like, I mean, I'm gonna, I, I don't have to go and build the thing. I could just come up with the idea for the thing sometimes. And the people that are building the thing is like, no, please, please stop talking. Please, please stop talking. Right. Right. And I think, and I think that that's really interesting. Going back to the conversation about like size of size of business. Right. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I want to kind of, I want to ask this question is like, so you've worked predominantly, like you said, in, in smaller organizations. Right. And now you work at the smallest organization possible. Right. So I'd love to kind of get your thoughts. You know, we don't need to go through like a career progression or anything like that. But at one point in time, like, did you, you know, you worked at a company and then you hung out with company and watched it grow a few times and then you moved on to something a bit smaller uh, and use the, the number 250. Right. Was that just mm -hmm. kind of a is it was it because there was some operational debt that gets incurred? based on the size of people that you got uncomfortable with, or is it just, you felt mm. like you could, you didn't have, you, there, I don't, you know, want to quote like some philosopher, but like you started to feel kind of like strapped or you started to feel a little bit of chains put on you as it pertains to free, um, creative freedom. No, I, um, okay. So for me, there are a few factors. I think the, the, the biggest factor is, um, there's Dunbar's number, which I don't remember what the exact number is. I think it's around 225 or 250. And it's this idea that um, there is a number of people that you can know. Yeah. And once you cross that number, you're, you're not physically capable of knowing everybody anymore. Sure. And if, if you've crossed Dunbar's number, then it means you are necessarily working with people in a company that you may never meet, you yes. never speak to, yes. never interact with. And that's weird. Right. Like going, like when you go to an all hands meeting, like the, the team offsite where they get the whole company together, when it's 50 people, you're yeah. like all around one really long dinner table in mm -hmm. a private room at a restaurant. And you actually talk to all your coworkers. And, you know, when you have the, the team sessions, you can all be crowded around one whiteboard and it's not efficient with 50 people, but you can do it Yeah, with 250 people. You absolutely 100% cannot do it. You sure. have to break into smaller groups. You have to work in like kind of disjointed areas or you have to have very clear separation of ownership where like there is a product organization and in the product organization, there are sub organizations that own different aspects of the business yes. and that's very necessary, right? And for me, I, I don't mind that, but what I prefer is that smaller, like I want to be at a company of 20 because yeah. at 20 people, you can get the whole company on a call and say, this is the big idea. What risks are there? Yeah. And then, you know, support says, well, what about this? And product says, what about this? And everybody yeah. just kind of says like their piece and then they all kind of weigh in and then you go, great, we're going to break it down. We're going to give you the big idea. And then each of you is going to turn that into a list of like a scope for yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can have those discussions and make these rapid decisions and, and be pretty agile. Uh, the bigger the company gets, the more likely it is that those decisions get made by smaller and smaller, like in groups, like the leadership yep. team or the product team kind of works in an insular way. And then the, the roadmap falls out and engineering just catches it and has to deal with it. Um, so that's a, depending on how the organization scales itself, you, you'll see, either waterfall emerges or very like insular siloed uh, 
kind of organizational separation starts to emerge or things just get slow because you have like the leadership team has ideas and then those ideas have to be properly socialized with everybody and the feedback period needs to be open and then it has to come back up and the adjustments need to get made and then that has to be disseminated through the the middle management chain and you have to have like you know what i mean like you you, well, you make it sound you either, very exhausting well <laughs> I, mean, I don't know that it's yeah for me it yeah. is exhausting for yeah. for other folks though, like this yeah. is what makes them confident in their company. If, sure. if you work at a company that has these communication challenges, not challenges, communication channels and checks and balances, and they, they want approval processes and they want someone to be making sure that like, Hey, did you run this by the docs team before you put this on the backlog? And, you know, and then you wait a week while the docs team has a chance to review and that's okay. You know that everything happens on a six to eight month cycle. Um, that is very like comforting, I think, and, and confidence inducing when a company runs on that cycle to somebody who's in the town settler to city planner on the spectrum. They want to know that the roadmap's not going to get ripped up tomorrow. They want to be confident that they're not going to put three weeks of work on something and then find out that nobody cares about it anymore because leadership changed their mind. That, so it, it's, you know, it's again sort of on the like, where do you fit in best? My strength is rallying a small group of people to go and build something quickly. Yeah. Um, and so I would get put on like at, at Netlify, for example, I'd get put on a special project where I would pitch, hey, we've we've got some like UI drift between our app, our docs and our our main marketing site. I want to bring together the key stakeholders across all three of those properties and do uh, we called it Web Cohesion Week. And so we brought like 18 people together and we did a week long hackathon to make the app, the docs and the website all look the same. So we did like, you know, we've got a group of shared variables put together, got some shared components moved between things. And the teams were all kind of consulting with each other. We had the right designers in the room, the right front end engineers sure. in the room, the product folks in the room. And that all led to, you know, a, a big win in a short period of time. I'm really, that's my strength, but the bigger Netlify gets the more stressful it is when me, the VP of developer experience, why was I doing a thing that was touching product and design and, and yeah. engineering, right? Yeah. So the it makes sense kind of, but it also stresses out those other, like I got to co collaborate with those leaders and make sure that I'm not blowing up their plans. And, you know, if you're at a smaller company, you can have those ideas and, and land on a plan faster because mm -hmm. there, are fewer, there are fewer balls in the air. Uh, sure. And, and so I, yeah, I, I, I want to be careful about saying like one is better than the other. Yeah, no, I no, no. I, I already get, I already get, you already are saying that your way is the best, which is fine. That's totally cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no, but I think you, you say something that's, I mean, this is all about, again, back to what we were saying earlier, like what brings you joy? Like not to quote the silly right. thing on Netflix, but like what brings you joy, right? Like, you know, if you can go to work every day and like, I, I tell people this too, like if you, if your first thought is when you like, it's Monday and you have to start work, your first thought shouldn't be, Oh, I got to go to work today. Right. Right. Like if that is your first initial feeling, like, sure, you could be not wanting to go to work on Monday. That's totally respectable. But like, you can't be like complacent about it or bummed out by it because that means you're missing out on some other opportunity that might bring you more joy. Yeah, so, I think if you're yeah. if you're dreading work, right? Like <laughs> yeah. that's a bad sign. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I, I would love to kind of, you know, we have about 15 minutes left. I wanted to kind of transition into what you're doing right now, which I think is really, really interesting. It's like you've done this, um, you you've worn done this the the generalist sort of thing, wearing many hats, and then you kind of move into this developer experience work where, you know, is it marketing, is it devrel, is it product, right? I think you kind of mentioned the answer is yes. To all of them right uh and now like you know you've kind of transitioned into a completely different sort of role Do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah so i um as of the well I, I guess officially as of december but really like practically as of this uh this month january i have gone full-time on learn with jason and the the intention is it's sort of like three three areas of focus that all kind of service each other in a in what hopefully becomes a, a virtuous cycle 
So I, I make the show. So every week I do a, a longer solo show on Tuesdays. And then I have a show with a guest on Thursdays where um, I do, I learn something new in 90 minutes. So they come on as an expert, they teach me something they know, and we kind of build it from scratch. Um, that is a, just a steady content production pipeline. I've got some ideas on ways to to do a little bit more with it, but you know, we'll, we'll kind of see how it goes. I, that show works. I don't want to break it. Um, the second piece of it is I'm doing, uh, contracts with companies, mostly in the, the early stage where I want to work with them on their, their dev relations strategy. And what I mostly want to do with that strategy is, is talk about where they're applying their energy and help them do it in ways that are going to get an actual connection with the community an actual response from, from the developers who they want to reach um, instead of what I've, because I think a lot of the things that used to work just don't work as well. Like conferences are very different today than they were in 2018. And the ROI is not the same anymore, right? So it's not that you should never do a conference, but I think a lot of companies put all of their eggs in the conference basket for, for DevRel, and I don't think that works anymore. So I want to talk about what else people could do and help them kind of move that way. Uh, and then the third prong of it is I want to actually put together education for companies to put better DevRel together without having to hire me as a consultant. So this is what I want to do is I'm, I'm kind of doing the DevRel in Learn with Jason. Uh, I'm helping companies directly as a consultant, and then I'm trying to put together education so the companies can self-serve better DevRel uh, through the, the educational arm. Yeah, and I think one of the things that's fascinating about this, and just for some folks, um, for context, we were talking about this a little bit before we got started, about like the idea of consulting developer experience or consulting developer engagement or developer marketing right. or DevRel, whatever you want to call it, right? And you had a, a, a pretty hot take and I don't disagree with it at all. I would love for you to kind of, you know, talk about it a little bit more, flesh it out a little bit because mm. you think that DevRel is going to change to, in some capacity in the next few years. Yes, I think... So the, the challenge with DevRel is that while effective devrels are not celebrities there is a bit of a like a celebrity treatment that happens with them and the rules change a little bit when you become uh well known in a space sure. and so what i think companies have been doing is they've been trying to hire uh full time these people who are you know, well-known in the community. Sure. And the, the upside to that is you get a lot of uh, like, you know, noise when they, they partner with either on your team, they, they chose you, you're, you're the company that out of all the companies they could work for, they wanted to work for you. But I have never seen a well-known DevRel stay at a company for longer than two years. <laughs> like it just, it, it's almost unheard of. And like, yeah. you know, there are obviously there are exceptions to that rule. Um, and, you know, to it, like, if, if I can toot my own horn and say that I'm one of those DevRels, sure. I stayed at Netlify for three years, yep. right? But it's yep. still like that relationship ended. And, mm -hmm. and part of what happens when, when a DevRel, like somebody who's well-known, like if Cassidy Williams works at your company and then she leaves, you have to have a whole strategy around how do we handle the the potential negative perception of this well-known person leaving yeah. our company? Yeah. How do we make sure that people know that it's because they're moving on to their next thing and not because we're doing something bad, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think the, the shift is going to move more toward like endorsement, the way that like, you know, Nike doesn't employ Serena Williams. They, they get her to endorse Nike and they like pay her, you know, uh, they pay her royalties to like yeah. make Nike her official shoe. Sure. Um, and, and I think that for full-time content creators, the folks who are really out there, you know, it's, and it's very clear, like who is in it because they want to make content and it's kind of like their brand. Uh, versus who's 
not like who that's not the case for. Um, and for folks who want it to be like, they want their brand, they want to be full-time content creators. It makes way more sense for companies to, to use an endorsement model where sure. you partner with those yeah. folks and, and then go out and like create some content with a time boxed relationship that you can always extend. You can always, you know, negotiate another year. Um, but the benefit then is you get all the upside of having worked with that person and they're endorsing your company and they're teaching people how to use it and they're showing it off. But none of the downside of like now they're going to quit and go do something else. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you have to do like PR to to figure out how to control the fallout of, of somebody exiting your company. Um, so I, I suspect that that's going to be a, a change as as time goes on. Yeah, it's, it's, that's quite interesting because it reminds me of a conversation that I had on this show. I don't even know when it was, uh, probably over a year ago now when I had Kat Cosgrove. And I don't know if you know Kat. Because mm -hmm. um, she was talking about, you know, being a developer advocate and, and her thought process was very much, you're paying me to talk about your stuff. You're paying right. me to speak about your stuff. And if some other company comes around and wants to pay me more to talk about their stuff, I will go and do that. And I think right. that like, I mean, I completely respect that. And I think that there's something to say is like the people that are good in DevRel, the folks that are in good in DevRel, like you're right. Like they kind of hop from company to company. And there's probably a million reasons why that that's the case. Maybe it's, you know, just opportunities. Maybe it's they're not interested in the work anymore. Maybe they want to try something new. But the number one thing, like you said, is that if the immediate thought when I see that somebody has left said company that I follow on Twitter. I say, oh, I wonder what happened. Right. That's like the first thing that I think. And that's not the way to think about things, right? So <laughs> well, especially when you like if you look at the way that that this industry works specifically for DevRel, right? The, mm -hmm. it, you look at somebody like I, I talked about Cassidy earlier, but like if you if you look at Cassidy's work, she's so prolific and so effective that I you know that she's got an offer every day in her inbox to sure. do something that would be amazing. Sure. And so it's, it's such a, it is such a gamble to go all in when you know, like as soon as you can't compete with the, the, you know, the wild, like somebody in crypto who just got their ridiculous valuation and funding, who can yeah. then go and throw around $300,000 a year salaries right? How many times are you going to hear that you could double, triple, whatever your salary yeah. before you start going, oh, maybe I could, yeah. <laughs> maybe I should take that job. Right. Yeah. Um, or like, you know, the, there we're all, we're all, we're all friends. Like everybody in DevRel knows each other and sure, like sure. one of them will go get a new job and they'll love it. And they'll say, man, you should come over here. Like, this is really fun. We're having a lot yeah. of fun. And I'm like, I want to work with my friends. It has nothing yeah. to do with the company. Yeah. Absolutely nothing to do with the company. It's just like, you know, like when I left Netlify, I left Netlify. I love that company. I'm, mm -hmm. I still use it all the time. I talk about it all the time. I just had an opportunity to do something that I've wanted to do for a long time, which yeah. is go all in on learn with Jason. So, you know, the, but I'm sure there was probably speculation like, oh, I wonder what happened. Why did Jason leave? Um, and the, you know, it's like, sure. There were things that, that I, I would have changed about Netlify, but mm -hmm. like for me, that's still the best employment job I've ever had. Um, and if I didn't have this learn with Jason opportunity, I'd still be there. It just, you know, I, I'm lucky in that I have a lot of opportunities out there and, and one that I've wanted for a long time, you know, the stars aligned and I'm able to, to take this bet on myself. Uh, and for me, it kind of lets me have my cake and eat it too, because for example, I, uh, like I just took a contract with Astro now Astro shouldn't hire me it wouldn't be a good investment on their part sure. because I'm expensive and most likely in, you know, two years I would move on to something else. Yeah. But if they contract me, it costs them less than hiring me full time. I get to go work with this company that I really like. I think it's cool tech and it's fun to talk about. And we get to like have this sort of relationship of, of collaborating and building cool stuff and I'll help them with strategy and, and we'll come up with some good ideas that some of them will do together and some of them they'll have on a backlog for, you know, in the future. Uh, and everybody wins, right? And nobody's going to speculate on like, why did Jason leave Astro? Because I never joined. I'm on, I, we're teaming up to do some stuff yeah. together. And when that contract runs out, like, yeah, that was the, that was always the plan. Yeah. So I think it's a, it's a little bit about, um, when you have people who are highly visible, 
you you don't want to like you know what's it gonna what's it gonna look like when John Myers leaves Superbase? Because he's he, there's no way he stays there forever. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, and, you can start naming off like some people that you're like, oh man, if they left said company, it would be, it would be a kind of a big deal. Like I just can list off like ten of them, right? Like, right. And that's not a good thing to be like, oh, if that person left that company, that company would be, I don't want to say in shambles, but there's definitely like, oh, maybe that's not a good place to work. Maybe they're not doing well, the right that, thing. Yeah. And that's exactly the thing, right? Like if if we found out tomorrow that some of the folks that we follow right now were leaving mm-hmm. their companies, depending on how they make the announcement, sure, you know, we're either going to walk away thinking like, oh boy, something must be going on over there, or we're going to be, you know, like there's going to be speculation because even if it's for a great reason, like I had, I've had folks that I know who got offered like 150% of their salary and a, like a level bump mm-hmm. to go do DevRel at a, a new company. Yep. And there was, there was no reason for them not to take it. It was such a great opportunity. The, you know, the company they were at wasn't in a position to, you know, there wasn't a role open that was yep. equivalent to the one that they'd been offered and it helped them on their career. So they got everything that they wanted out of the job that they had. They helped the company they were with quite a bit while they were there. And then they got a new opportunity out of the deal and they took it. And public perception though, you can't say like, oh yeah, so-and-so just doubled their salary (laughs) because that's, you know, (laughs) that's now you're the, the company would have to like kind of share very private details that don't make sense to share and kind of open up this whole other can of worms Mm -hmm. about where people start like judging whether or not that person deserves more money. And you don't want to ever make somebody that subject of discussion. Um, But at the same time, like you're stoked for him. Like, yeah, (laughs) of course that's a good idea. Yeah, Yeah. You're doing great. I'm so happy for you. You have to take that job. And then you have to go do this, this sort of damage control of like, no, but we're, we're leaving on good terms yeah, and yeah, everybody yeah. still likes them. And Hey, can you do a little bit of stuff with us after the fact to show that we're still friends? And mm-hmm. yeah, it just, it gets into this very complicated dance that I don't think is necessary anymore. Like yeah. we, we've figured out what DevRel is and there are a lot of disciplines inside of DevRel that aren't what I'm talking about. The, yeah. the, like you know, the, the solo content creator types that are, are very much like big personalities, the Kelsey Hightowers out there. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, for the folks who are like content personalities, like yes. they have made it their job to be somebody who makes content and they've built up a following based on who they are. Um, because, you know, we, we all follow companies that have a great content machine and there's mm-hmm. somebody making that content, but we don't know who it is. Yeah. Because it's the company has built that machine. And those people want to work for a company. But for somebody who wants their them to be the source of the content, then the companies are borrowing their reputation. And so it's it's just better to do that through an endorsement model, I think, because it it sets everybody up for success instead of creating uh creating complexity when the the relationship inevitably evolves. Yeah, and I think you know, at, at, we're about to wrap up here, but what you're saying is not like it, it already exists to an extent. We just don't call it that. Like influencer right. marketing is still like a very big part of marketing, right? Mm-hmm. Where like, hey, there's some social media uh, personality that I subscribe to. Let's pay them some money to talk about our, our product. That right. happens constantly, right? Happens mm-hmm. across businesses, right? Because I think you hit the nail on the head. It is much easier to just write somebody a check and own the content and they own the content and you just get leads or whatever it is than it is to onboard a person, get them into your culture, get them into your business, hit them up with benefits, all that stuff. It's much easier to write a check. It is. It's substantially easier. And, and if if the reason you're hiring them is because you like their content, mm-hmm. then it's so much easier to just say, can you make what you're making but about us than yeah. to say, do you want to join our team? And now we've got to kind of build out like – how do you fit into our team? What can you build yeah. that's not what you've been doing, but like in addition, it just adds it adds complexity and it, it's kind of like, you know, that, that old adage of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If, yeah. you, if you've got somebody that you want to work with and they're doing a great job on their own, don't try to change their stuff. Just, you know, financially motivate them to bring you into what they're doing. And a lot of creators do that. Like if you look at all your favorite YouTubers, all of them are taking money to to make content about 
the things that they talk about. Sure. Um, it doesn't decrease the quality of the thing. It just no, helps them prioritize what to play with next. Yeah, and it makes it makes it's it's a mute it's a mutually agreeable contract, right? Mm-hmm. Like I get views, so I get not only do I get to build my brand, I probably get monetization. I also get paid by you, and then company who's doing it, we're getting visibility, awareness to potentially some areas of technology that we don't have access to. Like, hey, if I right. go and pay this influencer, I immediately have access to their network, their audience, right? Which is really, right. really valuable for a lot of companies. Um, yeah, yeah. I think, and you know, as we're wrapping up, I think this conversation was great. I think we could honestly keep going for a while, but I want to be <laughs> mindful of the time, not just for you and me, but for the folks that are tuning in as well. Um, I do have one last question, however, and it's a quick one. Um, at the end of every show, I love to ask my guests if they can kind of summarize their feeling when they think about the technology space, the open source space, even in your case, maybe the developer relations space, but they only had one word to summarize that thought that they had. What would it be for you? Optimistic. Optimistic. That's, I mean, that's pretty good. Sounds good to me. So, I mean, Jason, I want to thank you so much for hopping on and chatting with us. I had a blast. I hope you did too. Um, Do you have any parting words or things you want to sign off with? No, uh, thank you everybody for for hanging out and for listening to me ramble. I appreciate it. And uh, please come hang out on you know Twitter, Twitch, wherever you want to. Yep, and we'll be sure to put some uh, links to some of the stuff that Jason's working on in the show notes, as well as if you're not already following him on social media, there's places to find him there as well. So uh, I want to say again, thanks Jason for hopping on. Thank you for everybody tuning in. We'll see you next time on Coffee and Open Source. Take care.